Hello, and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jarrett Stepman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantha Mitra. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the legacy of Henry Kissinger, the great statesman and historian who died on November 29th at the age of 100. And Samantha, I think we both wanted to talk about this topic. I think it's quite important at this time because, of course, right in, in the immediate aftermath of, of Henry Kissinger's death, you really had a, a deluge of negative articles and headlines essentially accusing Henry Kissinger of every crime and terrible thing under the sun. And I think that both of us uh, thought it was it was an important time to reconsider Henry Kissinger, which is kind of the, the theme of our podcast, and kind of put his, his life and, and his ideas into perspective and to, and to uh, give the man a defense that I think he's at least deserving of as certainly one of the most influential statesmen and international relations thinkers of the 20th century. Um, I'm actually going to read some of the headlines here because, frankly, some of them are so ridiculous. Um, you had one in Vietnam, Henry Kissinger was worse than a fraud. This comes from The Hill. Uh, Hen- Kissinger should be remembered for the suffering he caused. New York Times. Henry Kissinger, the hypocrite by Ben Rhodes, also in the New York Times. Interesting, an, an Obama advisor there who uh, had a bit of a colorful uh, record, especially in regard to Iran and the media. Uh, there was another one. Christopher Hitchens was right about Henry Kissinger. And of course, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens actually wrote a a book uh, about uh, Kissinger on trial, which he was extremely negative and, of course, accused him of many uh, war crimes. I think the one that actually got me laughing the most uh, was Henry Kissinger dead, how he became Zoomer's most hated man, which I think pairs very well with the headlines from just a few weeks ago about how uh, Zoomers and Gen Z were, were picking up uh, Osama bin Laden's statement after 9-11 were suddenly mm-hmm. interested in that. I, I I find this to, to be the, the, the opinion of uh, illiterate imbeciles to be uh, not particularly valuable in this case. Um, but the headlines were unbelievably ridiculous. Of course, counterpoise with uh, it's something we saw from the Washington Post to the death of, of, of a, 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 the, one of the heads of the Islamist state calling him an austere religious scholar. You see a deluge of negativity toward Kissinger. Why do you think that the left, and maybe not just the left, that so many in media and so many have uh, gone after Kissinger at this time. Why is he such a, a hated man uh, from such a wide part of the, the political spectrum? I think you, <laughs> I mean, now that we have like kind of like ticked off our Zoomer demographic base of the, of the podcast, uh, <laughs> right, so we don't really. <laughs> um, I, I, I think you pointed out to a very interesting point is Henry Kissinger is the only person in American, in, in modern, you know, strategic, you know, foreign policy circles who is hated for the same reason by both the left and the extreme neoconservative right. Um, and this is the most interesting part because they both call Henry Kissinger war criminal um, for different reasons, but the, the fundamental charge against Henry Kissinger is the same, that he's an amoral war criminal, that he has got no morality. Um, and I find that interesting. And, and, and the second point, as you mentioned, is majority of the hate for Henry Kissinger comes from either 
the Boomer and Gen, Gen X, um, you know, uh, people um, who are, you know, very liberal. Like, you know, you remember like in 2011, like the people who used to read like Gawker Media and Wonkhead, like they're probably like 50 up. And, and, and the other demographic group which hates Henry Kissinger is um, the Zoomers, as you mentioned. So he, for some reason, seems to draw a very binary hatred from two nominally very opposed groups like neoconservative right and the left-wing Trotskyists, for example, or, or Zoomers and Gen Xers. The reason is, from my view, uh, is something that Henry Kissinger would have probably understood. Like, And we are going to go to talk more about his, his past life and his scholarship. Um, Kissinger's worldview can be summed up more than anything in one single idea is he was opposed to hyper-emotional people. He was opposed to the passions of the demographics. He was opposed to public opinion and public opinion swaying um, in, in a democracy. And he would have totally understood the groups which we just mentioned being the most emotional groups of them all. They, you know, they, they consider to be, you know, that they are more passionate about morality. They're more... They are more crusading in a way, um, so to speak. Both the Zoomers, they're like, most of the Zoomers are, because of their age, and I don't really blame them. I don't want to sound like a ticked off old granddad, but most of the, <laughs> but most of the Zoomers are ignorant uh, and they haven't seen the tribulations of, the, of a world where you face someone like Soviet Union, for example, as a, in a binary challenge. They are, they are ignorant, and given their age, they're also very arrogant because that's, you know, it's, it's teenage for you. You, you. you think like you know everything. We passed that same age at one point in time. Um, same with the neoconservatives and the Trotskyists, you know, on, on the left. They, they are the, the basic worldview for, for both neoconservative right and the Trotskyist left is that they are moral they 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 predicate their entire worldview on the basis of justice and morality so it's understandable why you know the binary groups would hate henry kissinger and he probably would have understood that i mean he his his main scholarship uh, on on the concept of europe um which is probably one of the best books that anyone would ever read um categorically deals with the idea of public passions and in a democracy and how they could be dangerous. And he grew up in the Nazi Germany. So you can imagine how much um, his worldview is summed up by, by his, if not hatred, at least his, his concern about the, you know, the democratic passions that's unleashed. Yeah. Always. It's an interesting thing, of course, being, you know, a man who affected statesmanship and maybe among the most democratic of nations, which is the United States, a very interesting thing. I have to say, and you wrote a, a great piece uh, for the American conservative, kind of a tribute to Kissinger called uh, Henry Kissinger, more than a statesman, which was the headline of the piece, which um, I think you actually hit on something that was my introduction to Kissinger way back when I was a freshman in college. I, read his book Diplomacy, which was kind of um, both a history of uh, the, the concert of Europe and European history in the 19th century through the 20th century, through a lot of uh, the events that he was a, a key decision maker. And I really got a real understanding of history that I, I wasn't taught in school. That was uh, that was something that was very new for me as, as a freshman in college. 
so for me, Kissinger was very much a teacher and a historian for me, somebody who taught me about world. And I have to say, when I read his book, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in Oakland. And I remember reading the, the book Diplomacy in, in Coffee Shops and getting, of course, death stares from some people sitting in those <laughs> coffee shops. Just the fact that I was reading from this man uh, was hateful. In fact, one person even kind of came up to me and told me, oh, Kissinger is a monster. He's a war criminal, blah, blah, blah. Just for reading the book, just for reading which was essentially a history. Um, but what I think was very admirable about Kissinger and something that really sets him apart is in some ways he saw himself as a historian first and then a strategist. I think you, you had one great quote, and I'd like to, to read this quote from your piece. Uh, this comes from a, a reflection from Kissinger. He said, I think of myself as a historian more than a statesman, of course, playing off of your headline there, which was great. As a historian, you have to be conscious of, of the fact that every civilization that has ever existed has ultimately collapsed. History is a tale of efforts that failed, of aspirations that weren't realized, of wishes that were fulfilled and then turned out to be different from what one expected. So as a historian, one has to live with the sense of the inevitability of tragedy, which I think is a great quote. Maybe he was thinking about himself to a certain extent uh, when, when he said that. Um, but this, this, uh, this, this belief that somebody who is a, a strategist and a statesman thinking about international relations looks into the past, looks into history and tries to understand that with the idea of this is going to help us guide us going forward. C can you talk a little bit about that? I, I, I think that that really seems to be maybe one of the most critical parts of his entire legacy. Yeah, yeah. so that so, quote came from uh, uh, an, an interview in, in the 1970s, I think probably it was in New York Times. So you're absolutely right. He One of the, the, the thing that I... I always notice in a good writer or a good historian is how they can talk about something um, where they identify themselves as one of the actors without explicit being explicit about it. And I think that's a great quality. I mean, Kissinger's book on Metonic essentially was about himself, um, where he kind of like he he saw himself as as a, a character from the from a concert. Um, like who, you know, who is tasked with burden the great jobs of, of diplomacy. Um, so I think I think you're absolutely right. I think he, he was thinking about himself in that quote. And he kind of like, you know, if you're a historian, the reason why true history, as we, you know, you and I constantly, you know, strive to talk about, is to be someone with a sense of tragedy. If you don't have a sense of tragedy, you cannot be a historian. If you are too optimistic, you're not a good historian. You, you, you're 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 going to turn to Steven Pinker or your Francis Fukuyama. You know, it's it, you you'd you'd never be a because because there is no point. There nothing in this world is you know permanent and it's going to be destroyed. Like we discussed in the Roman episode, for example, about you know um, when they saw the destruction of Carthage, they wept because they knew that it was Rome next. You know, inevitably, that's going to be destroyed. And by the way, Barry Gwen's uh, phenomenal good book uh, on Henry Kissinger is actually called The Inevitability of Tragedy, taken from the same quote. So this quote is like a minefield of good headlines. It's <laughs> something that we can talk about. <laughs> um, I, I, I do think um, he had that sense of tragedy. I, I think he was born in Bavaria um, at a time when, you know, uh, again, Germany was, you know, turning very different. It was extremely democratic. And some of the worst excesses of, of 
humanity was seen. We always talk about America being a democratic country, but we tend to forget that America is actually a very structured with checks and balances, which was not there in Germany. I mean, the liberals, for example, want to have, uh, you know, abolish the electoral college and, and have like direct democracy. That would lead to something like Germany, because then at that point of time, you know, you would not be able to have any kind of checks or balances against any kind of demagogues, for example. So uh, the majority of the greatest German philosophers who migrated to the American to, to, to the American homeland in those days from, you know, Leo Strauss and Hannah Arendt and Henry Kissinger and Hans Morgenthau, they all had this one. They could be like from different, you know, Kissinger more right wing, Hannah Arendt more left wing. But fundamentally, they were they were opposed they understood the, the the danger of of mass democracy, you know, uh, without any kind of checks or balances, and they and they had that sense of trust. They knew how fragile, you know, their society is and the society can can be. So Kissinger, for example, was born in Bavaria. He he grew up. He was he was a Jewish guy. He was skinny. He was you know his father lost his job because of Nazi you know uh, uh, Nazi Germany laws. Um, he used to like export himself in soccer matches and then get beaten up by the Nazi police. And eventually by, by the age of 15, he migrated to America. But when he came, he understood, like he had this, like, he was already an adult almost, like he was 15, still a teenager, but at least he was like, you're sensible enough to understand what's going on around him. And he came to the, to the American homeland. He came, came to migrated to us and understood the difference between democracy in the European context and democracy in the American context. And that, in my opinion, I think gave him an understanding of how much, how important stability and order is compared to just unchecked democracy. Democracy to them, to any of those, you know, I mean, that was a golden age of, of German, Germanic philosophers coming to, to the US. And to all of them, democracy never went to the point of being a virtue. And I think that's important yeah. to remember, and that's one of the major differences between them and and their and the latter part of neoconservatives who came to the U.S. Um, you know, uh, William Crystal and you know, uh, sorry, uh, Norman Pozoritz and all those, because um, they thought you know the, the the essence of neoconservatism is spreading democracy across the world because democracy is a virtue, whereas the essence right. of Morgenthau and Arendt and Kissinger and the previous era. Of Germanic philosophy. I mean, they saw Munich and drew very different uh, lessons from that. Like for the neoconservatives, right. the lesson was that you have to make every country democratic, and that would achieve peace. Whereas the for for the real politicers, for for Kissinger and Arendt and Morgenthau and Leo Strauss, it was like democracy is the evil, and you always have to have a bulwark to stop public passions. Because the moment you give into public passions, you don't really control uh, the mass, and you cannot. I mean, it, it, it's the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. You cannot control the mass, right. and you have to be wary of, of democracy as a virtue. I think that's. I think that's the key. We'll get more into that that word you brought up, which I think it's the first time you brought it up. This idea of real politique, which. You know, if they st if they still made dictionaries uh, in this day and age, I'm pretty sure that Kissinger and maybe Otto von Bismarck they'd have their picture there by the idea of, of real politique, which was critical to understanding uh, Kissinger, which we'll kind of get more into later because it is a huge part of his legacy and maybe part of the reason why he's come under uh, such criticism. Um, but let's let's continue with uh, uh, Kissinger's life. He he comes to America, um, then ultimately serves 
in World War II. He serves in the U.S. military, I believe, as a I, th I think he was at first an infantryman, but uh, eventually worked in intelligence. Can you can you yeah. talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah. So he because he was a shy uh, man, and he 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 his he never really lost his Germanic accent, and he was like fluent in his in his um in, in the in the um uh, in the laws and in the culture of his homeland. So. You're right. He initially drafted, uh, he went for training in 1943. Um, he was sent to Germany. He actually saw action and then he moved to intelligence because he was a good analyst. He understood the, the language and he could speak the language. And he was, at, he was one, of the, uh, one of the first guys who went, I can't remember the exact um, concentration camp that he went to, but his quote was like, I've never seen uh, humans so degraded in my life. Um, when he saw the victims of the concentration camp. And he was like, I mean, he his idea why America is such an important country that needs to be preserved. Um, also, again, also one of the reasons why he was not that crusading about American, you know, interests abroad is because his fundamental aim was not about preserving the world, but preserving America because America was the bastion of, you know, if America falls, then, you know, the world can be a very dangerous place. So when people say that he was not patriotic or he never really understood American values, I think they're completely mistaken because he actually understood why America is so important anyway. So to go back to your point, yes, he was an infantry officer. He saw action um, and then he was transferred to the, uh, to the intelligence agencies because he spoke the language. He went um, to the concentration camps, came back, and then he was like an all-star uh, in the all-star team in Harvard um, where he started to do his... Um, his undergraduate thesis was 400 pages, which is unthinkable these days. Um, uh, universities will not allow that to happen, but I think that kind of shows why. And, and he wrote like, you know, his undergraduate thesis was on um, the concept of history as institution or the concept of history as memory. It was, it was a phenomenal book. Um, and then he did his PhD, of course, um, as we both know, is probably his most noted scholarly work. It was called A World Restored. Uh, Castle Rematernic and Peace in Europe. I actually have that book downstairs. One of my favorite books uh, of that era, and uh, and that's where he he I and I, I would quote a couple of sentences from this book um, because it's so important. Where he designed and he explained what uh, how order is maintained. So he said, um, stability is doesn't result from a quest for peace but a generally accepted legitimacy legitimacy here is used should not be confused with justice it means no more than an international agreement about the nature of workable arrangements but fundamentally uh, it's a it's an order or a framework of international order by all major powers to the extent that no state is so dissatisfied like germany after the treaty of versailles so essentially, it is opposed to a revolutionary foreign policy. Um, and by revolutionary power, he means, and this is, again, a quote from his book, um, the distinguishing feature of a revolutionary power is not that it feels threatened. Such feeling is inherent in the nature of international relations based on sovereign states, but that nothing can reassure it. Only absolute security, the neutralization of the opponent, is considered a sufficient guarantee and thus the desire of one power for absolute security means absolute insecurity for all the others. This is uh, an idea, a concept of so much profundity. It's, it's to think of someone doing his PhD research and coming out with this concept, which turns out to be a book. It's, 
I don't, I don't, I don't see that happening often these days anymore. You know, first of all, universities will not allow you to write something like that anymore because you know they'd be like, "Where's the citation?" You know, it's it's more deductive research these days where you have to like prove things rather than coming out with new ideas. Um, the book is something that I urge everyone to read, but that kind of like distills Kissinger's worldview. Like, you if you have to have peace. You don't need justice in the world. What you need is stability and equilibrium. And to achieve that equilibrium, you need to have an order where there are no revolutionary powers. And revolutionary powers in this context means someone who is never going to be satisfied. You know, it's a profound concept. It is. And it, it really gets to, you can see why Metternich in particular was his his hero, because for those who don't know, Metternich was a... Austrian statesman who was essential after the Napoleonic Wars, after obviously the end of a revolutionary regime in revolutionary France that trounced through most of Europe, uh, creating a system that, to a certain extent, created a, 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 an enduring peace uh, in continental Europe following those years of revolution and bloodshed, uh, which was quite an accomplishment. Of, only really came to an end uh, in, you could say, in 19, in 1848, after the, the liberal revolutions that took place there. But a, as far as European history goes, uh, quite a record of peace and really had this kind of idea of this idea of a sphere of influence, the idea that we're going to keep the various powers in a sort of equilibrium uh, in Europe, that the concert of Europe. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because I do think it's kind of at the it's the hinge of what Kissinger believed and how he thought a stable system should look should look like. Yeah, so yeah, Kissinger's so worldview you. fundamentally well, is about, um, as he discussed in his book, like if you have satiated great powers, you have stability in the world, which is a bigger ethical consideration because it achieves peace. Now, other people would say, but that's not just. You just have different great powers deciding the fate of smaller nations and and that is it like it, it's it's a very hierarchical worldview it's a it's a worldview which is predicated on four or five great powers um deciding the fate of the world and to most people by definition that would look unjust and because it looks unjust they would be like that's not ethical that's not moral but kissinger's more ethical you know to, from kissinger's logic of real politique um, the more moral consideration is not whether five people or five great powers are deciding the fate of the world, but that there is no great power war, which is which causes far more misery. So the ethical consideration in this case is the avoidance of great power war, which would cause more misery compared to having four or five powers deciding, you know, the fate of the world. And the moment any one of those powers think that that is not something, that is not an order that they want to live in, they become a revisionist power. And that creates a whole lot of problem. Because at that point of time, they are not, they are, it, diplomacy only works when you speak in the same language, you know? Um, and when you have like five great powers and they're speaking in the same language, which others understand about their interests, that's fine. They are, it's a legitimate order, according to Kissinger, where everyone wants to be in the in and in that order and and operate within the framework which has been decided mutually but the moment there is one power which is unsatisfied with with the existing order like imperial germany for example like you know post concert of europe that order lasted for a long time and then suddenly with the rise 
of Imperial Germany, that order was destabilized. At that point of time, that power becomes a revolutionary power. Kissinger's hero, as you mentioned, was Metanic because he identified with Metanic not because of stability and order, but because he understood how what chaotic what what chaos can bring in a continental in a continent of great power war. So Metanic rose and saw the revolutionary chaos of of France and then the Napoleonic Wars because Napoleon's France was an unsatisfied power in the system. It was not satisfied. It was uh, a revisionist power. It was trying to change boundaries by force. And to bind that within the, the, the frame of, and that's also part of the, you know, the Niall Ferguson's argument that Kissinger was at the end of the day, even though he was a realist, he was still an idealist because he, he wanted to, it, it was idealistic to think that, you know, all powers will come together and bind the revolutionary power towards. Um, but the point is he identified with Mitterrand because he saw the same things that happened in revolutionary France and the rise of Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars in, in Europe happen again with Imperial Germany, Treaty of Versailles, a revolutionary German Nazism to him was a revolutionary movement. You know, it was not satiated with the with the current boundaries. It wanted to expand, it wanted to go back, uh, wanted to change the system. So you cannot negotiate with a power which is not satisfied because you're not, at that point of time, you're not speaking in the same language and you have to neutralize that power. And that's also one of the difference between modern academic realists and Henry Kissinger. So Kissinger, at the end of the day, is a conservative realist. Modern academic realists still behave, believe in more structural forces, for example. Uh, you know, uh, impersonal forces like billiard balls, as we discussed the other day, which is going to decide, you know, the fate of different great powers. Whereas Kissinger puts more focus on interpersonal diplomacy. Like to Kissinger, having people in a closed room, secretive and, you know, in, in a secretive diplomacy puts forward more achievable, long-lasting peace than letting the chips fall as it may. And that kind of reflects in his, in his, in his own work in his, as, as a Secretary of State. Certainly, I think it's interesting, even, even the United States, which one thinks is, of course, the most maybe extreme example of a democratic, small-D democratic country, much of American foreign policy through our early history was set by a handful of people around a room in, in the president's office. I mean, even through World War II, uh, President Roosevelt, it wasn't like modern day, I think things have changed quite a bit. I mean, much of our policy is dictated by you know, large policies built in, in the Pentagon or the, the State Department. But through much of American history, certainly uh, policy was often set by, by personalities, individuals and, and people with uh, a strategic plan. And so Kissinger was sort of thrown into this environment in which the United States faced, I would argue, the greatest test in foreign policy in its entire history, of course, building off of Kissinger's thesis about revolutionary regimes, the United States end up, ends up in a confrontation with a country that was a sort of quasi-ally during, during World War II that helped contain Nazi Germany, that suddenly became the primary threat to, to the world order and, and, and peace, which was the Soviet Union, and was thrust into, in, in his prime, into this long uh, struggle with the Soviet Union and how to uh, contain that power, how to keep this revolutionary power at bay, and how to ensure that the free world would not be overrun uh, by that revolutionary regime that was uh, incredibly aggressive, uh, that, that almost needed conflict and war to sustain itself. Uh, can you talk about uh, Kissinger's kind of early days of the Cold War when he finally started to really make a name for himself and started to actually uh, 
influence U.S. foreign policy. So you you mentioned about that interpersonal diplomacy and how even even in modern times the the majority of the 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 best the the most striking successes of America has been through interpersonal diplomacy and I totally agree. I if you have to name the four diplomats of the United States who have been the most successful in charting the course of American foreign policy would be Dean Exon, um, George Kennan, Henry Kissinger, and James Baker. All of them didn't. None of them operated within the framework of of institutions. They all operated on on an interpersonal basis. Uh, Kennan, for example, went and studied the Soviet Union and wrote that letter. Kissinger himself, you know, we're going to talk about Kissinger more anyway. James Baker saw the 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 final days of the Soviet Union. It was his individual diplomacy uh, that sort of resulted in a peaceful implosion of the Soviet Union without any major civil war uh, because even when Soviet Union was collapsing we were constantly like trying to satiate Russia saying like you don't have to fear anything we are not predatory power we are not going to take advantage of your collapse you're still going to be a member of society we are going to help you with different loans and those needed a lot of interpersonal diplomacy I think that has changed in modern days where we rely morally at, and, and you're right, we, we rely on bureaucrats and institutions like um, European Union and NATO and, and different United Nations organizations. So I think I think Kissinger's way is, uh, and, and also, I mean, the results kind of like show themselves. We don't really have lasting solutions to any of the problems because it's so bureaucratic. Um, so I, I personally obviously fall on the side of more secretive individual diplomacy. Um, I, I know people would disagree with me. Um, but to your second point, yes. So Kissinger, um, <laughs> interestingly, he was he was a Nelson Rockefeller guy uh, initially, but he didn't really um, he, he wasn't happy or satisfied working in in a John Kennedy administration because he didn't think people took him seriously. He had a massive ego. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, he was one of the <laughs> he was he was one of those guys who thought. Who thought that the burden of society is on his shoulders, and he's like Atlas carrying the world? So, um, so he didn't really like John Kennedy's. I mean, he he appreciated Kennedy's, you know, um, um, position during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but overall, he matched more with the kind of personality Nixon was, and uh, and Nixon also was, as we all know, uh, a character with major ego. And and a, and a chip on his shoulder, and with with this grandiose idea that he's going to change the world, which he sort of did in a way. Um, so I I don't I don't like judge him too much about that. But fundamentally, they are they they realize that they are very much similar to each other, and that kind of like it's one of the reasons why Nixon and Kissinger match. I mean, Nixon had this huge vision of of a 19th century sort of diplomacy where you know great powers coming together, and they're kind of like having a detente with the Soviet Union, having. You know, and Kissinger obviously read those days, and and you know that he was a master of that history. So he matched very well with with Nixon. The challenges in front of Kissinger was massive. We have to understand that what Kissinger achieved in six or seven years is something that other diplomats can only dream of having in their entire lifetime. Uh, James Baker oversaw the collapse of the Soviet Union. That's one major, you know, uh, achievement. Great. Kissinger did three of those things in, in seven years' time. He understood that the biggest challenge facing the United States was the communist movement in the entire world. And there was, after the death of Stalin, a little bit of split that's happening between China and Soviet Union. And classical realpolitik would tell you 
that if you see two challenges in front of you, you side with the challenge, which is lower in the threat potential against the challenge, which is higher in the threat potential. That's pretty much what Britain did throughout 500 years of European history, siding with the smaller of the, of, of the, of the, of the powers. Kissinger played exactly the same move when it comes to Sino-Soviet split. Obviously, China was a threat. And, and a lot of people, and this is, again, I, I, I feel like defending Kissinger in, you know, instinctively according to, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, we opened up to China and that's why we are here. That's not the reason. I mean, when we opened up to China, China was a basket case. Um, the biggest challenge was Soviet Union and we had to balance the Soviet Union by splitting China off. And we did that beautifully. Um, the reason why China is so powerful is not because of Kissinger, but because of post-90s liberalism, where we had China uh, join the WTO and kind of like move our manufacturing base east. But anyway, um, so Kissinger understood that Sino-Soviet split was happening and we have to break down uh, Soviet Union and China. And there was this diplomacy that happened in, in the 70s um, where they approached China by means of Pakistan, um, again, which would play a major role in the Indo-Pakistani conflict later on. Like when people say that, oh, we didn't really do much when Pakistan was killing Bangladeshis. But there was a reason. But anyway, so that was one of the major moves. The second thing that happened uh, was uh, the withdrawal from Vietnam. Um, he, on, he had a balancing act to do. On one hand, he had Vietnamese troops killing American soldiers, and then going to Cambodia, um, crossing the border. And Cambodia was a neutral country, so he couldn't really do much. So he had to show that uh, America would continue the war and be brutal in its bombing to bring Vietnam in the peace process, at the same time starting a back-channel peace process and stabilizing the concerns of South Vietnam, because otherwise the South Vietnamese would be like Afghanistan or Ukraine today, as we see. You know, they wouldn't let America come out. So, right. so on, on, so they ha he had to do that balancing act where on one hand, he was telling the South Vietnamese, you have to calm down, everything's going to be fine. Telling the North Vietnamese, we're coming to go out, give us time, and bombing Vietnamese troops in Cambodia and showing that if you don't agree to our point, we are going to stay and that's not going to be good for you guys. Obviously, America didn't really have an upper hand because American troops were dying, but he couldn't show that to the North Vietnamese. We always tends to forget when we judge Kissinger as to how we were being seen from the other side. You know, it's not just how we think of North Vietnam or South Vietnam, it's how North Vietnamese were perceiving American strength or weakness. You know, the resolve factor was constantly there. And the third thing which Kissinger did in his tenure was probably his greatest success. He was blindsided by the war between Israel and Arab states. He managed to talk to both Egypt and Syria in a matter of six days and get sort of uh, at least a moderate understanding of a peace process uh, between Israelis and the Arabs within a matter of a month. It is to talk about that. It's called shuttle diplomacy, um, you know, in, in the American poly. Um, to talk about that without understanding the scope, the limited scope of time frame that he was he was given, is unthinkable. He managed to do three of these things in a matter of four years: seventy-one uh, Nixon's visit to China, seventy-two uh, the peace process that started between uh, Vietnam and and U.S., and seventy-three uh, the Yom Kippur War. 
it, it's it's absolutely mind blowing to think that this one guy was behind the three major pivots in three major parts of the world, and we are not even considering the the the, the detente with Soviet Union. We're not even considering the the limitation talks uh, when it comes to arms. Um, you know, those were there in the sidelines, but these were the major three successes that Kissinger achieved in a matter of four years. It's absolutely unthinkable. Yeah, I think it's on that last one, the 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 Arab Israeli piece. I think it's very interesting coming you know, during the Yom Kippur War. Uh, there's actually a, a recent movie that came out, Golda. Uh, I thought that was very interesting that portrays yeah. Henry Kissinger and uh, kind of briefly uh, in his role. And of course, I think that the 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 ethos there was to contain the situation because, of course, this was part of a larger issue going on with the Cold War, the, the confrontation with the U.S. and the Soviet Union. The Soviets were highly involved in arming the Arab states to attack Israel. And Israel really was close to destruction, probably closer than at any point uh, since its creation. Uh, creating some kind of deal and some kind of something that appeared to be peace between Israel and Syria and Egypt was thought to be almost unthinkable, given especially what had happened during that war. And if Israel sort of saved itself uh, to a certain extent because it, it won on the battlefield. Um, but Kissinger was critical in, in creating a, a peace deal that that helped to continue uh, U, further U.S. interests, which is our main goal needs to be focused on containing the Soviet Union. That is not in our interest to see the Middle East or any region uh, explode into violence that, that we can't control to see a, a, a U.S., uh, potential U.S. ally in Israel be be overrun uh, by Soviet allied countries, uh, and and it kind of goes to his his larger you know this is if the world is a, is a vast chessboard Kissinger was pushing and pulling the pieces on that chessboard you could maybe con uh, compare it to maybe maybe the better comparison is is a game of poker where. Uh, we're playing against, we're not just playing our, on our own side of the board, we're playing against an enemy that's that's thinking about our own mentality and how we're operating. And uh, shows of force sometimes work to demonstrate to another country, you know, this is not this is not a country to be trifled with. This is not one to be messed with, uh, which is, I think, important uh, in, in foreign relations that any country does not become uh, contemptible to, to its opponents, to its adversaries. You're talking about our our role in, in bombing Cambodia, a show of force, showing the United States is going to be strong, that despite the fact that there was a lot of criticism at home of the Vietnam War, that we were going to continue the fight if we had to. And I think that that's an important thing to understand in, in modern relations. I mean, certainly everybody wants peace, uh, but sometimes peace is secured through the idea that you can use overwhelming force. That really is, I guess, the, the basic underlying uh, idea of peace through strength is that when you are strong, uh, other countries don't want to test that strength. And that that Kissinger really understood that and knew that a show of force would would better sec secure a better deal for the United States and put us on longer term footing to ultimately defeat our foes and to ultimately uh, survive in a system that in a, in a global system that was hostile around the world, certainly with the revolutionary Soviet Union that. Uh, that Kissinger understood this and played a critical role. As you said, these these three achievements are um, absolutely incredible as far as world history and, and where his placement is in history as far as a, a U.S. diplomat. Uh, I don't think anybody has quite that record in such a short amount of time. And probably 
and really help the United States at a critical time in the Cold War, in which it looked like we were on our back foot, which it looked like the Soviet Union uh, was perhaps even surpassing the United States, uh, keeping that kind of equilibrium and, and, uh, and allowing the United States to, to further the fight was, was essential at that time, wouldn't you say? Oh, I, oh, I, I absolutely. I mean, one of the things which you mentioned is um, about um, the, the, the time. I forgot about that. Like, we, we have to also consider the fact that all this was happening in the early 70s, where um, it wasn't sure that Soviet Union would collapse. Um, again, hindsight is twenty twenty, um, And who knows, if Soviets didn't go to Afghanistan, they might have prolonged their uh, their strength and their their money and their economy and Gorbachev's reforms could have worked. So you never really know uh, what an alternative historical timeline would have looked if the Soviets didn't also commit the same kind of mistakes that we did in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but also, this was the 70s, massive protests happening throughout the country. Civil rights was a huge issue. There were racial riots happening. There was an entire uh, Marxist... Uh, student movement um, that 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 happened in in some of the more prominent universities and colleges in the country. Um, it was America which was tottering on the brink um, in in the early seventies, and Kissinger had to operate in that within that uh, framework of, of of stability inside in 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 his country. The second thing that um, which people always talk about is the death of civilians in Cambodia, and I ask them the same question: like this is this is a um, this is a standard, you know, uh, argument by left-wing academia about death of civilians in a situation where a war is going on. You'll see the same argument that's happening with Israel and Hamas right now um, about, oh, you know, the amount of civilians are dying in Gaza. Um, and I always ask them the same question. What would you do if you have a determined set of enemy who is killing your forces and your troops and then hiding among the civilian population. Do you not go to war? Do you not take them out? Do you run the risk of, you know, and again, one can question whether it was logical to even be in Vietnam, but that's not the point of, of discussion at this point of time. This is a time when America was already in Vietnam and in the peace process talking about coming out of Vietnam. So those things were already happening anyway. Given that those things were happening and you still see sort of like a duplicitous enemy, you know, on one hand, they're talking about the peace process and giving all sorts of guarantee that, oh, we're not going to go to South Vietnam. We're not going to take over, you know, we're going to be like North Korea and South Korea. They, you know, there's going to be a, a, a peaceful uh, division between the two countries. But on the other hand, their troops are coming and killing your forces and then going back and mixing with Cambodian population. You had to bomb them. You know, there was, I, I the major three, criticisms of Kissinger um, that comes from the mostly from the left and partly from the neoconservative right. But they're, they're fundamentally the same argument that, you know, he was so amoral, he didn't really care about civilian population. Like, look what he did. He threw the, the Kurds under the bus in, in Egypt uh, and Arab states. And I must like, so do, would you would you have destroyed the peace process between Israelis and the Arabs because of the Kurdish population? Like, what would you have done in, in with the hand that you're given? Right. I mean, Chile, people talk about Allende's uh, government being overthrown. First of all, Kissinger didn't really. America didn't overthrow Allende's government. They did it themselves. What America did was support the government that came after. You also have to understand 
that INDES government was not some sort of saintly democratic government. It was it was at best like a like a like a Hugo Chavez kind of thing in Venezuela, and at worst, uh, given in those days, uh, a Cuba in the making. You know, Allende was extremely cozy with Castro, and we already had a nuclear crisis with Cuba, and we didn't want to have another nuclear crisis in the Latin American hemisphere. So Kissinger didn't dictate the overthrowing of Allende's government, but what he understood was that stability in that country was far more important for American strategic interests um, than anything else. At that point of time, the Sino-Soviet split was already happened. America, the Soviets already understood that we are trying to, you know, uh, go with China to kind of like sideline them. If they saw an opportunity of Chile going against America, they would have taken that opportunity. And it was, you know, in our interest to sort of like preemptively destroy that, that chance for the Soviet Union to take. And the third thing they talk about is um, uh, Kissinger's taking side of Pakistan in the in the in the in the Pakistani war he didn't take a side uh, of Pakistan he didn't he refused to do anything because it was not in American strategic interest it was a humanitarian concern and this is what this is why neoconservatives hate Kissinger is because he differentiated between strategic concerns and humanitarian concerns which have kind of um, changed in the current circumstances like we don't do that anymore we kind of like all we are all Samantha Power. Like we, we see someone dying and we have to like think about like, oh, we must do something there. But think of it this way. Pakistan was not, it was a dictatorship. But it, again, Kissinger was operating in the framework where India technically was a Soviet Union's client state, even though it was in the non-aligned movement, right? So, and I'm not, you know, justifying the, you know, the, uh, the fact that Pakistan was good. India was facing a lot of problems. Pakistanis were killing Bangladeshis willy-nilly and there was all you know massive refugee movement that was coming to india so it was a pressure on india to intervene as well but that being said it was at the end of the day a war between india and pakistan on the matter of bangladesh a third party in a time where india is a strategic uh, a soviet union's client state and pakistan is used as an in-between to talk with china so I ask people, like, what would you have done in that scenario? Would you have, dis- you know, destroyed the peace process with China and, and the Sino-Soviet split? Would you have taken a side with Pakistan and, and bombed India, uh, risking a Soviet Union's counterattack? You know, I mean, it, it, it's easy to be an armchair general and think uh, with, a, with a distance of 20, 30 years in between us to say, that, oh, we probably should have done that. But you're, you're, you're not in that situation. You're, you're not facing those kind of threats that you, that you think you are. And you have to operate in a scenario where you are facing a nuclear superpower opposed to you who, by definition, is prone to take advantage of anything that you are losing. So it, it's, it's a zero-sum game. And Kissinger operate. I mean, one of the reasons why modern realists think that he's not a realist is because they think that things could have been done in a different way. I just don't think that. On, if, you, if you are in Kissinger's position... You have three worldviews. One, stability of the great powers. Two, equilibrium and no great power war and you know, no, no nuclear war. And three, a risk of demographic, uh, democratic tyranny. So he was seeing all of those things in his own country. There was a massive you know, problems that were happening with, with race riots and, and universities. On the other hand, there was a risk of a great power war in, in various parts of the world. And he did his best to sort of achieve uh, an equilibrium without 
seeing the collapse of his own country. So I think there lies his greatness, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, with all that, you know, kind of gets to this quote that he had, uh, a country that demands more perfection, its foreign policy will achieve neither perfection nor security. I think it's, it is a great quote. I mean, if you even think about U.S.'s role in World War II, it's always thought of as, as the good war. We had to make some oftentimes very terrible decisions. We did attack civilian populations. I mean, the, the German war industry was was very much uh, embedded within those civilian populations. We, we bombed Dresden to the ground. We, we leveled uh, Japan even before uh, the atomic bombings took place. And the firebombing campaigns that took place there were, were terrible, uh, were, were de destroyed uh, massive numbers of the, the civilian population. And had it continued, might have uh, incinerated all of Japan practically. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're dealing in a world that is, is a fallen world that uh, doesn't have perfect, uh, perfect answers for us, uh, and perfect uh, answers of moral clarity, especially in, in foreign relations, uh, where issues of power and strength are very critical. I mean, what, how, what would the world look like had the U.S. not made those decisions and the Soviet Union continued to gather strength and became uh, the world's preeminent hegemon? I mean, it's it's certainly uh, within the realm of possibility. Had South America fallen, had Asia all of fall, all of Asia fallen, the United States could have seen itself uh, as a a free country alone. I don't know what that world ends up looking like. Uh, it's it's almost too terrible to comprehend. Uh, and then you will see some real moral depravity because I think uh, it's it's very clear that what the Soviet Union stood for was an abomination, a terrible evil. And I do get the feeling that at least in some of the criticism that comes from the left of Kissinger's policies, I, I really do think that there are some who think that essentially we were on the wrong side in the Cold War, that, 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 the, that the socialists and the communists were effectively on, on the right side of history, that I think there was a, a bit of antipathy to U.S. actions because they, they stifled and stymied uh, communists and socialists around the globe. And I think there was a certain amount of bitterness. I mean, this you even saw this, you know, how how certain factions, even within the U.S., flipped uh, during World War II. There were a lot of uh, leftist union movements that were uh, suddenly very pro-Germany when the Soviet Union was aligned with Germany that suddenly turned against them as soon as they attacked the Soviet Union. So I think there's more to the criticism than simply seeing Kissinger as uh, a, a morally bad man who who did uh, things that were beyond comprehension foreign policy. I think there's this idea that the U.S.'s actions in containing the Soviet Union were ultimately wrong. Uh, certainly what you see from a lot of college campuses where there was criticism during the Vietnam War of our, our role in that war toward the end of the war of people outright sympathizing with the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese as if they were somehow uh, morally superior to the United States. And I think that that is oftentimes mixed in with some of the criticisms of Kissinger and U.S. foreign policy uh, during the Cold War. Um, I'd like to kind of get to maybe you could say a criticism from the right as far as Kissinger's strategy, which is the end of the Cold War, which is the Reagan administration, the 1980s, where there was, I think, certainly I think the idea of containment continued, but I think that Reagan's policy was much more um, aggressive and confrontational with the Soviet Union, certainly as opposed to how Kissinger was in the 60s and 70s. Now, maybe you could say that the nature of the Cold War had changed at that point, that, that the facts on the ground as far as the strength of the Soviet Union, some of the cracks, some of the chinks in the armor 
uh, started to be exposed, and they were exposed by a strategist like Reagan, who I think his ultimate belief was that the Soviet Union uh, was not a, a country to simply be contained, that it had uh, faults in how it operated, that it was against human nature, the communist system, and that the U.S. could exploit some of its failures of that system to ultimately lead to its, its downfall, to its collapse and the end of a, an evil empire, as, as Ronald Reagan called it. Uh, can you talk about some of those differences between Kissinger and Reagan, maybe uh, some of his role at the end of the Cold War? I think, yeah. I mean, uh, before um, we talk about the, um, the differences, I, I, I would like to revisit one of the points that you mentioned, and you're absolutely right about that, is we always try and think about the Second World War as the good war. Not a single decision that we made in the Second World War was moral. It was necessary to do that because we were trying to defeat Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. Um, we quite literally delayed opening the Second Front um, so that Stalin and Hitler could kill each other right, and bleed each other to death. I mean, Stalin himself said that, like, you know, they're, they're delaying the second front because they want us to do the major fighting and they want us to die, you know? And you're, you're absolutely mentioned about the, the, the firebombing of Tokyo and the bombing of Dresden, um, where we had to, had, again, they had uh, weapons industries, um, you know, and we had to, you know, bomb those cities. Most importantly, when it comes to aligning, um, America, a liberal democratic country, a republic, was aligned with a reactionary empire under Churchill and a Bolshevik revolutionary under Stalin. You know, we, when, we, when we talk about, oh, how could we even tolerate P Vladimir Putin these days? And I'm thinking, do you know what we had to do? You know, and, and, and funnily enough, interestingly, when we were bombing ISIS, the other side who were bombing ISIS too were the Russians. So it's not like, and, and the Iranians. So it's not like we don't align with with dodgy powers and countries and we only think like, you know, we only operate in the moral circumstance. It, it's never the true case, which brings me to the second point about Ronald Reagan. You're absolutely right. The situation changed by the time Reagan came. Um, Reagan, uh, at that point of time, the Soviets made one of the biggest. I mean, first of all, um, Iran collapsed in 1979. That changed uh, as, as, uh, th that changed the dynamic of, of the Middle East uh, in a way that we couldn't imagine before. We had before the Iranian collapse under Nixon, America had a very light strategic footprint and forward presence in the Middle East. After the collapse of of the Iranian government and the coming of the Islamic theocracy, we had to have uh, a more uh, a bigger uh, strategic footprint in the Middle East. Um, so the Nixons. Cutdowns were reversed by by Ronald Reagan. Um, the second thing that happened was at that point of time the Soviets went to Afghanistan and that threatened uh, the American client state in Pakistan because India again was a Soviet client state on one side and Afghanistan was uh, directly under Soviet influence. And American strategic thinkers at that point of time was thinking if if the if the oil flow stops in Aden. Um, with the Iranians on one side and the and the Soviets on the other, that's a danger uh, to the American strategic interest when it comes to fuel pipelines and channels and sea routes. So that changed between Nixon and Reagan. The second thing, though, however, I think people kind of like hype up Reagan's rhetoric without actually understanding that Reagan wasn't much different from Nixon when it comes to actual actions and real politique. 
Um, think of it this way. When uh, Reagan was the one who moved troops out of Lebanon, um, you know, regardless of his talks about um, how we are the beacon of democracy, he was very um, prudent about moving troops out of the harm's way. Um, he was far more prudent about moving troops out of the harm's way than we are from Syria and Iraq, where we are having, with our troops there now, facing lots of problems without being able to do anything. You know, they're like, they're essentially like baits. Um, second, it was under Reagan we funded uh, both the Iran and the Iraq um, and the, during the Iran Iraq war. So that was like most, one of the most amoral things we did. Uh, the Iran-Contra uh, thing that happened was under Reagan. Nicaragua happened under Reagan. The invasion of, of, of uh, in, in Latin American countries. Um, so I, and most importantly, I think people tend to look at Reagan going to Germany and saying, oh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down the wall, you know, and all that. Reagan was very, very em em you know, I I don't know the exact word. He was he was wary. He was concerned about nuclear proliferation and nuclear war to the point that he started the strategic arms limitation talks with the Soviet Union in Reykjavik. He went there, and it was interestingly, Reagan was facing the same criticisms from the neoconservatives who now extol Reagan as one of their greatest you know heroes of the Soviet Union. It was the neoconservatives who were opposed to Reagan. Uh, in the 80s and saying, you shouldn't go to and talk to the Soviet Union. You know, they are the evil empire. You say you're they are the evil empire. Why are you talking with them? You know, so I think there is a there is a historic risk of historians shouldn't just study what is coming out of the mouth of a politician. They should actually study the the actions of what what is what are the observable evidence. And in that, I don't really see much of a difference between Kissingerian and Nixonian real politique and Reagan. Yes, Reagan was more, um, he was obviously more flamboyant, more flowery. He was, he was a great speaker compared to Nixon. And, 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 and he rhetorically at least boosted up the, the fight for democracy. But you, as you mentioned, it was a changed geostrategic scenario. Soviet Union was already collapsing. And at the end of the day, we didn't really do much of a, you know, when, when it comes to actual actions, when it comes to realism. Um, I think a bigger criticism of Kissinger that people should do more is his interest in being in the limelight uh, in the 90s and 2000s and support stuff that he otherwise would have opposed. Um, he understood that. And he, again, Kissinger carried a big chip on his shoulder. He, like, he, he's, he's constantly like, you know, he's, he's trying to justify himself. But his support for the Iraq invasion in 2003 was, I think, his, his biggest um, and, and later on kind of said that like I, we probably shouldn't have done that or we probably shouldn't have stayed. Um, there could be a debate about whether we should have gone to Iraq and then came out without trying to do any kind of nation building, but that's a separate question altogether. But I think Kissinger's biggest criticism that might come would be his interest in being in the limelight. I mean, he because he thought he saw the world in a more Metternichian worldview, like he wanted to be in the in the room constantly, like, you know, and 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 I think that is... That is his biggest criticism, in my opinion. Finally, most of the people in left-wing universities and colleges, when they talk about morality, they ignore the immorality of Nazi uh, of the Soviet Union, and that's exactly what should that that should tell you a lot about which side they would have been. They see America as inherently an evil country, uh, an evil great power, and capitalism as as a system that is flawed. 
all the talks about morality and why Kissinger is comes from a from a position of deep inferiority because of the fact that they lost the Cold War. You know, um, I I don't have any respect for them because I think like they're kind of like fifth columnists, and you know they they are they are they are. Yes, they live in the West and they enjoy all the good things that the West has to offer. But at the end of the day, inside them, they absolutely hate through in from their every fiber of of their being um, the fact that they lost the Cold War. So I think a lot of um, left wing criticism of Kissinger comes stems from the fact that they lost and we won, and they hate that. Quite simple. I, I love that. Uh, I, I will say one more thing about about Reagan's foreign policy in the 80s, I think what I think it shows is that you can have a, a very much a realist kind of foreign policy that I think Reagan did have while he combined it with this rhetoric that I think very much spoke to the American people, making clear distinctions about what the Soviet Union stood for, what the United States stood for was important at a time in which you had many inroads by these these various these very leftists you're speaking of who convinced many Americans that, well, it's all the same, you know, we're just, we're just like them and they're just like us. But the reality is they were not just like us. What their system represented was it was a terrible evil. And to have the United States weakened around the globe with the fact that the Soviet Union was a revolutionary regime meant the Soviet Union would be stronger around the globe. And the, the belief that they should come to an end, that that system should come to an end was Reagan's primary, you know, contribution and pushing in the right spots at the right time, pushing you know hard power uh, around the globe, uh, did just enough to to, to topple that regime uh, because Reagan didn't want nuclear war. He he was uh, terrified of, of something like a nuclear Armageddon. He didn't want that happening on his watch or ever happening. You know he really believed that uh, the peaceful basically destruction of the Soviet Union was possible. And you know like any great strategist, he was able to execute that. He had one big idea in mind, and that's what ended. Uh, the Soviet Union, which could have uh, could have lasted far longer. I think this idea that it was inevitably going to collapse is just wrong. I think it collapsed because the United States was there and because we made a lot of decisions, not always the right ones, but I think ultimately our decisions turned out in the positive column rather than negative column more of the time. And that's, to me, a spectacularly successful uh, foreign policy. Whereas now, I think one of the issues in the post-Cold War era is this kind of lack of any kind of grand strategy or, or larger thinking about the world. As, as you mentioned earlier, many of our concerns now simply fall on the, the humanitarian side without any larger strategic goals in mind. I think very much about uh, the war in Libya that took place under, under President Barack Obama, which we went after a man who was very much an, an evil man in, in Gaddafi, who was running Libya for going after his own people. We topple his regime and we end up with many people easily as evil as, as Gaddafi, who destabilize an entire region, which leads to multiple wars without any clear result. I mean, what 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 did what did the United States get out of that? What how did was the world benefited? I mean, would the body count have been any higher under Gaddafi than what happened later? Probably not. Uh, so, looking at these issues from a strategic perspective and not just saying, "Well, there's some bad guy somewhere. We got to topple the bad guy because he's bad." Uh, is is very important how we we think going forward. The United States is still a monumentally powerful country. We can topple nations throughout the globe. We have to think strategically and, and, and with a larger perspective as far as why and how. Because a decision in one place, uh, you know, losing a war in one place does have repercussions and consequences uh, that can lead to to more terrible things down the line. We do have to consider that. 
I absolutely. I mean, uh, Libyan example is Libya and Syria, especially, are the two major examples that we we should harp on constantly about the that the the dangers of having a moral foreign policy. You know, the the prime argument in Libya and and in Syria was that we are not doing anything. We have to save the people. What that led to the collapse of order in the entire North African coastline resulted in migrant crisis in Europe, which still hasn't been solved resulted in the rise of massive far-right movements, which had no power before that. It essentially came to power in the in, in the 2011s and 2012s because of the massive migration crisis. Inflation happened. Brexit happened because of Libya, fundamentally, you know. Um, so, yes, we toppled Gaddafi, but and, and Libya is a slave market. I mean, they before we went to Libya, and there was this good parliamentary report that came out in the UK, Libya had 140 tribes. And the only thing that was keeping it together was uh, a brutal guy in, in the form of Gaddafi, who, by the way, was aligned to us because he was giving us information about Al Qaeda. You know, he 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 and and from a broader strategic perspective, both the Iranians and the North Koreans saw Libya as an example of what would happen if they even give an inch to the United States when it comes to nuclear power or or weapons of mass destruction. I mean, to North Korea. That is the only reason why they haven't faced the the, the fate of Gaddafi in Libya. So in, in the balance sheet, as you mentioned, like we did more harm being going full Samantha power and going a more moral way in Libya and, and than, than anything. And that's one of the criticisms of, of Obama from the neoconservatives. They're like, well, we didn't do much in Syria. I mean, great. What what do you think would have happened? I mean, if we toppled Assad, um, do you think like there would be like Jeffersonian democracy uh, spreading in Syria? Because that it's not quite the history of the of the Middle East, you know. So I think I think I think Kissinger was right. And again, we always go back to the time you and I. Seventies um, was a very different time. He was operating in a framework we we tend to forget. It's very easy to judge from the benefit of hindsight, but we don't uh, you know live in that situation anymore. So, so one more thing before we go, because we've spoken for a long time here. Uh, the thing that I think is most known, Kissinger's most known for, of course, is his Kissinger going to China and creating this kind of break between the Soviet Union and communist China. Today, we seem to have a situation in which China and Russia are perhaps more closely aligned um, in their interests than maybe at any time in the last century maybe maybe their history to a certain extent their their fates seem to be aligned it seems to be in part because of specific u.s strategy uh can you talk a little bit about you know right now we're dealing with the fact that uh china and russia seem to have very line interests they they are kind of operating in tandem is there some kind of i mean just is there a you know trump goes to russia kind of thing you know where you know we break off russia from china is it necessary uh, as far as containing the threat that communist China has become to break off Russia. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that is very important right now uh, as we see the kind of chess pieces moving around the world that these two great powers, Russia, more of a strong military power, China, this unbelievable economic power that the U.S. has never really quite faced before. And they seem to be in tandem right now and threatening U.S. interests around the globe. Oh, I, I think you're right. I mean, um, we have pushed Russia towards China. Russia and China, uh, they, they are not natural allies. I mean, they share a massive border. They have got border issues, which, which is not solved. The Russians are very wary about Chinese investment in the eastern parts of, you know, of, of Russia, essentially as a, as a way of, of taking over Russian uh, land by proxy. 
Um, they're very worried about Chinese debt diplomacy in Africa, which where Russia has a lot of interest. They're very worried about Chinese influence in Central uh, Central Asia, which is right the, the soft underbelly of Russia. But we have pushed Russia towards China by mindlessly thinking that Putin is the next Hitler um, and he's going to take over the entirety of, of Europe when Europe is essentially... We are essentially being led by Europeans in this in this thing, especially by the Baltic states, for example, um, where they re- legitimately have a fear of Russia and it's under- understandable why they hate Russians so much. But also, they are essentially chain-ganging us to a conflict that we don't need to be. Um, there won't be Russian tanks in Poland. There won't be Russian tanks in Germany or Belgium. Uh, Russian Navy or in the English Channel. There is no threat of Russian hegemony in Europe. They cannot take Kiev. You know, it, it, it's difficult to, to even visualize. On the other hand, China, it's quite literally, quite literally, um, 10 times Russia. You know, the, the Russian population, total population around 144 million people. The Chinese population is 1.3 billion. Quite literally 10 times the size and, and manufacturing power. The Russians couldn't manage to find 300,000 troops. Um, it, it took them like two different ways uh, to get there in, in Ukraine. The Chinese can get at least a couple of million people, uh, men under arms, in a matter of weeks. The Chinese Navy is probably the largest buildup of naval power since the First World War, Anglo-German naval race. And for the first time in history, China has got direct fuel supply from the other side of the land border, which we cannot bomb or we cannot do anything because it comes from Russia. You know, so far, we could have choked China off by cutting off their sea lanes. Now that they are aligned together because of our own stupidity, they can just get land-driven uh, oil from Russia, and we can't do anything about it in case of a great power war in, war in, in South China Sea. So, yes, we absolutely need to get Russia on our side. At the end of the day, they are a Christian power. You know, they are they're European power. There are legitimate differences with Russian interests, and I don't think the Russians trust us anymore. Um, you know, they have they've, from their perspective, we have betrayed all of their trusts in both after nine one one and even before that. But on the other hand, if we can come some sort of a, a Kissingerian uh, equilibrium in Europe where we satiate Russian uh, revisionism and say, fine, you, w- Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO, but also you can't take Ukraine. Ukraine would be like Austria, like a neutral country, a buffer state between the European Union and Russia. We could get Russia on our side. They are, at the end of the day, a technologically advanced country. I mean, if you are seeing the current war, you know, they were uh, in the back foot when it comes to drone warfare, but immediately they produced cheaper drones and now they are um, now it's a stalemate in, in Ukraine. So I think they are they're a technologically advanced country. They're 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 they're, they're an old historic power with good literature and 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 culture and civilization. I don't think they're going to be our friends or allies, but there needs to be they, they can more than China. They can probably uh, come to some sort of a. a uh, a, a security arrangement in, in Europe. China, on the other hand, is a whole different game altogether. I, I think we have, to, in a way, we probably would have to do a reverse Kissinger. Like we, I mean, the Russia is the weaker of the two powers, so we we approach Russia and give them something in return. Yeah, we we don't need the Russia to be our bro. We just need them to that's exactly be at loggerheads yeah. against China. I mean, I think yep. that's the the bottom line of it. So to kind of end things, I, I know we we usually talk about. Uh, books that recommendations i know you have a, a probably a long list of of kissinger books that that you like i'll say again i i mentioned it earlier in the podcast one of my favorites was diplomacy which is kind of a, a long book about 
um, the concert of Europe and kind of European foreign policy uh, in the 19th century, of course, through the 20th century. So I think as far as like an overview of, of Kissinger's ideas about foreign policy in the last two centuries, that was my favorite. That was my introduction, really my introduction to foreign policy in general. So I, I highly recommend that one. How about you? I, I would go for his first book, his PhD thesis, which came out as a book in 1957. I, um, I think that's a classic. Um, that's something which everyone should probably read because it's the history of a, of a time which is very similar to ours. It's a multipolar world with different great powers trying to achieve some sort of concert and peace. Um, the name of the book by Kissinger, uh, which was, again, it, it was his PhD thesis. That's, again, unthinkable for someone to write that during his PhD. Um, uh, the name of the book was A World Restored, Kissinger, um, Metternich, Castlery, and a Concert of Europe, or something of that sort. Um, the two other books, though, that I'm going to recommend is about Kissinger, uh, not written by Kissinger, but about Kissinger. One is Niall Ferguson's uh, Kissinger, The Idealist. Um, which is a kind of like a reconsidering of whether Kissinger was actually a realist or not. Uh, it's an interesting book. I don't, I'm not really very convinced by it, by its core argument, but it's, it's a good book to read. The second book, which is far better, is essentially a defense of Kissinger. It's by Barry Gowen called The Inevitability of Tragedy, which I mentioned when we started the, this podcast. Um, it, it's a, it's, again, it comes from that same quote that you mentioned at the start. It's a beautiful quote. It's a beautiful book. It tries to, if not justify, at least explain some of the Kissingerian actions which are uh, which face constant criticism. And most importantly, Barry Cuen is, the, is a, he's a New York Times editor. He's not really a conservative. He's a liberal. And you see a liberal defending Kissinger, you probably would want to read that book anyway. But it's a, it's a good book. For sure. And I, I think I'm going to do something that we haven't done before on the show, which is kind of preview uh, uh, our next episode, which is going to be about a uh, great power conflict in the lead up to World War One. I. I felt that talking about Nixon, then talking about great power conflict uh, leading to World War One, was is very much in line. Uh, I think it's very appropriate. Uh, so you can look forward to that next week. I want to thank our audience for listening to History Reconsidered. This episode of uh, Kissinger Reconsidered, uh, and thank you, Sumatra. Uh, thank you so much for for talking to me today. Thank you very much, Jared. It was wonderful. <laughs>